Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summerley. Hey everybody, this week we're talking about behaviour change at scale. And my guest is Professor Mike Trennell, who's one of the UK's leading lifestyle medicine researchers in digital health and diabetes. So Mike's a professor of metabolism and lifestyle medicine at Newcastle University in the UK. He's founding director of the National Health Innovation Observatory, and he's the expert behind the BBC documentary, How to Stay Young, where he uses his background in weight management, diabetes and nutrition to basically inform all of that documentary. So do check it out. Mike's currently imparting all of that expertise and his epic background as co-founder and chairman now of health tech company Changing Health, which is a behavioral change platform for type 2 diabetes management prevention and weight loss. So there's a load of good lessons for entrepreneurs in this one and for anybody interested in health and technology, you've got to listen to this this week. So Mike and I discuss all sorts from elite sports and technology, which Mike's been involved in. We talk about the value of good mentors in shaping you as an entrepreneur. We talk about how we're all standing on the shoulders of giants in health tech at the moment, as well as the changing health tech landscape through Mike's time in the sector. So as always, if you want to get in touch with us, head over to the description of this episode to find links to all of our emails, socials and websites. So enjoy the episode. So Mike, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? Excellent. I'm very well. Whereabouts are you speaking to us today from, Mike? So I'm speaking from sunny Newcastle upon Tyne, and of course the irony is I'm in the northeast, so it's it's dark, cloudy, and cold. <laughs> Much like it is here, a classic November English morning of drizzle, spitting rain, <laughs> completely grey. Uh, why why are we here? That's what makes us British, though. This this kind of uh, this melancholy of weather. That's just it, right? That's it. it kind of makes it easier to go to work just because you're not really missing anything outside. <laughs> <laughs> um cool mate so mike what we do at the start of these podcasts is i get you to tell your story so for all of the listeners obviously we've had a quick chat before so i know about your awesome background but for everybody listening mate why don't you tell us your story oh so thanks james and thanks for the invitation to come along and and speak with you today so it's quite interesting because i've i guess i'll start at the end instead of the beginning so i'm a a professor of metabolism and, and lifestyle medicine and I've started up and, and now lead Changing Health, which is um, one of the first uh, scalable digital health companies in, in the UK. But I, I've never really thought I would end up in this position. I guess if I started from the very, the very start, now we know where I am at the end. I, I never really wanted to be anything to do with, with health. I think I interestingly I was just obsessed with rugby as a, when I was a kid and sport in general so any sport I could do um, I would kind of I would get involved in and uh, it was superb because I just used to go out from what, seven eight in the morning I'd be doing my newspaper round and then try and fit in as much sport as I could do in the day nice. uh, I, want, I wanted to be a, a, a rugby player and so I would train as much as I could be to 
to be a rugby player and I was really fortunate to play with some some amazing players and to play to quite quite a good level and I had delusions when I was younger that I, that I could be a uh, a full-time professional rugby player though I guess when I look back on it now I wasn't anywhere near good enough <laughs> <laughs> but, but you still, still hindsight's do. a wonderful thing Mike yeah hindsight's a wonderful thing so I, I made my way through university and I was okay at university I trained in Leeds and where I had just an amazing experience and then at the end when I finished university I, I had what um I went to the doctors and they said, oh, you need a, an operation on your, on your back. And it's not urgent, but you should have it done at, at some point. And 11 back operations later and two years housebound, uh, I was, and at the same time, I was, I was told I, I had dyslexia. So and no wonder I love sport because everything else was a little bit too hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember my school reports were that if I, if I could talk, um, through an exam, um, I'd be all right. <laughs> to write it down, I was I was terrible. Um, I was kind of that annoying kid at school who who asked all the really hard questions. So yeah, <laughs> I remember vividly being in a biology lesson, uh, asking what pH stood for, and my <laughs> my biology teacher going, uh, uh, "I don't I don't know." And and so I then came back and said, "Oh, it stands for part parts hydrogen, and it's amazing." scale of, of hydrogen content <laughs> and, and, and she went yeah yeah it would be all right if you could talk it but yeah it's all good it's not going to come up in an exam <laughs> so, so it's not going to be that useful um so it's amazing when you spend two years not being able to to do much how your grades get a lot better so i did a, a master's because there was nothing else to do whilst you were lying down <laughs> so <laughs> you may as well study um and my grades lo and behold got a lot better um as I didn't have the distraction of, of, uh, of sport and all the, the socializing I was doing. Yeah. And, and I was in Leeds and the weather was just typically uh, Northern in, in the UK. So the, one of the problems with doing metabolic research, which I, I started doing at the time is you do it before people wake up and eat. Now it's just terrible because that means that probably for 20 odd years now, I started work at five or six o'clock <laughs> before anybody has any food. Yeah. Um, so I used to go to work and we were doing, we we're studying um, the effect of sports drinks on, uh, on triathletes and their performance. And so I'd go to work at like 5.30 in the morning and because it's in the middle of winter, you don't see any daylight. I'd, I'd then teach through the day and then I would teach in the evening. And I, I realized after three months, I hadn't seen daylight. Um, just that dark gray. Oh, God. Uh, winter weather and thought crikey there's going to be some for seasonal affective disorder isn't it <laughs> yeah it must be for grumpiness and so <laughs> email had just kind of appeared and it was one of those uh, one of those new new attractions i guess that we're all starting to play with if you if you got an email you got excited yeah gone of those days goodness yeah. me <laughs> and uh so I, I sent out an email with my cv to about 50 or 60 places around the world and just kept chasing people up because I thought, well, that's, oh, nice. there's got to be something to do. And I, I got offered a, a PhD position um, in New Zealand with a, with a really a fantastic nutritional researcher. And, uh, and I thought, oh, great. Well, I'll head out to uh, Otago in, in New Zealand. And while I was planning all this, I thought I'll take a bit of time out in Australia. And I guess 
cut a long story short, I, I never made it to New Zealand. I ended up spending seven years in Australia. <laughs> uh, and so when, when I landed, uh, I, it was just before the Sydney Olympics in 2000. And I, I just seemed to have, I guess one of the things that has happened throughout my life is my, my wife says I always seem to land on my feet. And hmm. I normally say, yeah, but while I'm falling, I, I work quite hard to make sure I'm <laughs> upright. Yeah. So I landed in Australia and found myself working for the, uh, the International Olympic Committee and the Australian Institute of Sport. Oh, um, amazing. Developing, <laughs> developing a drug test for EPO for the, the Sydney Olympics, which ah. was just, it was brilliant fun. So you, you um, injecting uh, semi-elite athletes with, with EPO and then having a look at the red blood cell profiles so that you can determine whether somebody has been taking uh, EPO illegally. Mm. Just it was great, great fun. And it was brilliant because we published the, the trial just before the Sydney Olympics and suddenly there were all these groups of teams who were withdrawing um, when we announced that you could actually test for EPO. Oh, my God. And there was a, a group in France who did it too. So, yeah, that was a cool time. Uh, wow. And then, it, and then I, through that, I, I found myself working with the Wallabies uh, in uh, about, this would have been about 2001, 2002. So just after the Olympics, looking at how you could apply some of the maths modeling, the stats that we use routinely in medicine um, to injury and high performance. So I was, I had a really fantastic uh, project looking at injury rates from under 12s all the way through to the international team. And it's just phenomenal that just by applying a bit of statistics, you can see key trends in, in injuries in rugby, which, uh, of course, we do that in medicine. You call it pub, uh, public health surveillance. But uh, mm. um, doing it in elite performance was quite fascinating. How For you... someone like me that doesn't know what sort of statistics are looked at, what do you think, it, what would you say sort of the most, the most fascinating things or, or the weirdest things that you're testing and looking at in terms of those statistics or like the weirdest correlations or something? What's, what's something interesting from that world? <laughs> so in, in, in rugby, so if you have a look at seasonal changes, so most injuries happen at the start of a season. Yeah. And they happen towards either at the start of a game or at the end of a half. So not surprisingly, when people are tired or when people are really fresh. Mm. And, and it happens when they're really fresh because that's when they run at each other the hardest. It's Rugby is a, a collision sport. <laughs> so mm. uh, it comes down to uh, the management. Either you're hitting each other with more impact or you've, you're more tired. So your, your likelihood of not being in the right position is, is higher. Huh. Quite interestingly, that there were, there were stretch, set times of the game and times of the year where injuries would peak, um, but also in set positions. So those who had more contact were more likely to to get injured than those who who wouldn't. And it it was fascinating because the stats on their own sound quite interesting, but what they do is they they start to give patterns where you can show um, you can show how you can adapt the rules to manage to manage injuries. So it's yeah, I guess that's one element is managing injuries and the other one is keeping your best players on the field at the time. So it's a game of chess using maths. Huh. So it, it was, that was a, a great, a really fantastic time. And uh, I then went on to do, I was fortunate to get a, a funded PhD position, which for an overseas 
student uh, being in Australia. That was that was a bit of a coup. So I, I got a, a PhD position studying neuro, neurogenetics and biochemistry, um, which was just fantastic. I, I had two phenomenal PhD supervisors who who taught me an enormous about not just about medicine but about how you handle yourself and how you talk about about uh, metabolism and, and medicine and how you work with patients. So I was really fortunate to then be exposed to different parts of medicine from sleep medicine to type 2 diabetes to obesity through to people with, with inherited uh, genetic disorders. So it was a really amazing time when I learned a huge amount very, very quickly. And then at the end of my, my PhD, which for the geeks around was looking at hmm. mitochondrial ATP flux uh, in people with different types of disease, but that, which is very geeky. Uh, but at the end of it, there was a paper that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is, is one of the biggest journals in the world. And it was saying that type 2 diabetes was caused by mitochondria, which are the things that produce energy in the body. And it just didn't make sense. I'd spent the last five or six years working with people who had real mitochondrial problems or energy production problems. And the way that they looked and presented themselves was very different. So I then did the same thing again. I started looking around on the internet. So where were the best places in the world to start to study these, the, the way that energy is produced in, in the body. And I found myself looking at Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge. And then there was this place in the northeast of England called Newcastle. And mm -hmm. I got invited to, to meet one of the leads in Newcastle, a, a, a guy called Professor Roy Taylor. And I, I went to the other sites as well. And, and Roy really stood out because we stood in the middle of this building site and his building site was which was to become his magnetic resonance center his clinical research center and i remember it vividly because it was the 6th of january uh, 2006 and the, the sleep was coming down horizontally and it was blowing a gale and, <laughs> and and we stood there just talking about science and medicine and, and how you can help people and after about 45 minutes roy said michael how about we just agree that I'll offer you a job and, and we'll go to the pub and have a pint. <laughs> <laughs> it was the, the easiest job interview I've ever had. I didn't, I didn't realize I was having a job interview and that was 2006 and now we're 2019 and I'm, I'm still here in Newcastle in the Northeast. So I was really fortunate when I moved to Newcastle again, Roy was a, and still is a fantastic mentor. I think one of the things that's really stood out to me over my career is that I've been really lucky to be supported by fantastic mentors who do you know what? I've actually just written that down before you said that I've I've written when when you said about your PhD in neurogenetics and biochemistry I put that you you clearly talk about this value of good teachers and mentors you know that those people not only taught you the neurogenetics and the biochemistry but they taught you how to present it how to present yourself you know all those different things so you, yeah you, it clearly sounds like good teachers and good mentors have shaped you I, absolutely and i've been i've definitely ridden on their coattails so when i when i came to newcastle there was the best mitochondrial researcher in the world was is based here a guy called professor sir doug turnbull and 
he, he does this amazing genetics work and I was doing lifestyle medicine and I realized that I could bolt on my quite simple lifestyle medicine onto his world-class research. And the same thing with Roy. It, that's quite, uh, was something that I did that I hadn't realized how impactful it would be on my career because what that does is just gives you a massive step up in terms of your credibility by being affiliated with these, uh, these real titans of science. Mm. You know, I've heard, I've heard the phrase a lot recently with regard to health tech about standing on the shoulders of giants. And it's so, it's so true that so many hard yards have been done in all the various fields. And now that clinicians and other people that, are, that have been in biology and biochemistry, all these different things, everybody's starting to diversify in terms of they've got their, their one thing that they do, be that, you know, PhD in genetics and biochemistry, but then they do something else, whether that's like in yourself with sport and all these different things, I think with that diversification, it just means that, as you say, you can start bolting on these like slightly different either products to things or, or even not as definitive as that, even just concept, like conceptually. People are just thinking about things a little bit differently and, and able to bolt on these different concepts to quite old established things. And, and yeah, I guess that phrase, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants in health tech at the minute, it seems, it seems quite apt. I couldn't agree more. And it, I would extend it beyond just um, these these real giants in, in the area know their things and they know them so well. But I think when you come in as an early career uh, research or early career scientist or wherever you are, um, what you do is you bring a different view. And that's the where real innovation happens, where you get, so with, with Professor Sir Doug Turnbull, it was, he spent his life studying mitochondrial genetics. He's done, he's changed UK law to allow um, gene editing um, for people with severe inherited uh, genetic disorders. And I just brought in this simple piece around lifestyle and it really transformed the way that he managed uh, and thought about approaching managing his patients. And that's really quite humbling. I'm so glad you just said that because I talk about this on the podcast all the time, but the more people that do medicine or a clinician in, in some way, shape or form and have got another background is so, so, so important if we're going to innovate in this space, because if all you've ever seen and heard are the frameworks of medicine that's the only way you're going to think but if you're let's say a computer scientist and you've been a computer scientist for 10 years and then you study medicine you will look at this as <laughs> this field as as in part ludicrous in part amazing but you'll know exactly how to solve so many problems that are going on you can stand, extend that to data scientists you can extend that to engineering you know Mir Imran who's been on this podcast before he's got 400 patterns but he did I think he did electrical engineering chemical engineering and then medicine didn't practice a day as a doctor but just started solving problems in healthcare by just building stuff that that genuinely went and, and solved issues so i completely agree more couldn't agree more sorry that the innovation happens where where those worlds collide and one of the the things to challenge i think if i was and when i do mentor younger people is to challenge them to to do that retraining so in the last 10 years i've, I've published 120 papers but you're kind of reached and they're kind of the Columbo questions. I, I, the obvious <laughs> ones that you ask, if I, I keep asking, so what? And, yeah. I, and I have a, so what radar, do we, for example, in type two diabetes, um, do we need much more research into lifestyle and type two diabetes? 
So we know if you can help people lose weight, move more, sleep better, you can have quite profound yeah. effects on their condition. You can even reverse it. Um, but we still don't do it in clinical care. So what's the point in chucking more and more <laughs> money, money at uh, better phenotyping, really deep genetic work, and then looking at yeah. phenotyping when we just don't do... If we, if we translated 1% of what we already know, you could transform the condition, but we just don't do that. Mm. I mean, people I say all the time, don't they, that the future's already here. It's just not very well distributed, and it's so true. And, and that's one of the things that in the next stage I became quite disillusioned with. And I, to be honest, personally, I found it really hard because you're doing all this science and we were publishing in, in great journals. And I just I kept asking myself, so what? So what, I, yeah. I, I get a... a, a I publish, I get a journal uh, with an impact factor. So uh, medical journals are ranked, as, as you know. Yeah. Until uh, so you get a, we, we were publishing some research in really good impact factor journals, so like 16 to 18. Mm. And I'm just going, so what? Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a real impact on, mm. on clinical care. So the, ne- the next phase, I think after getting a little bit down was actually my I have a, a responsibility to not moan about it, but to get on and, and shape, mm-hmm. shape that. And that was just a, a pivotal moment where you go, actually, no, I can do something about this. And, and I really then started to <clears throat> challenge the work that I was doing around um, transforming a, a condition. And that was fantastic because it made it not about me, but it gave me a real purpose. And... And that really started to shape the way that I did my training and the way I did my research. So mm-hmm. I, I, I started talking about in, in type 2 diabetes, how science was lost in translation. And I remember one of my other mentors at the time saying, Mike, just get on and do something about it. <laughs> and, yeah. and I went, okay. So I then had blazoned on my wall for about five or six years um, to transform type 2 diabetes and to make evidence-based education and support available to to everybody uh, no matter where you are you were born pretty curious weren't you i mean you, you challenge everything and as you say you've got this sort of so what radar and also you're and i, I see this in a lot of entrepreneurs as well and I, I definitely had this myself you know you're not afraid to essentially call people on their bullshit quite frankly it started with your teachers at school with the definition of ph or the you know the acronym of ph and it went all the way up to the sort of the new england journal of medicine when when they're they're, uh publishing certain things i mean it's 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 an interesting quality that's definitely led you to where you are yeah i i I don't know if i quite call it calling out the bullshit but (laughs) my my wife calls it the colombo approach You, you ask the the simple question uh, of why and I think if you if you keep asking it you, you end up in a position where you, I think you understand what's going on at quite a deep level um, mm. and so I am I find uh, academia very very interesting as a, as a as a group because we we basically take these amazingly intelligent people and then we we give them performance criteria around publishing papers and we rank mm. them and then we all fight for the same pots of cash and so that we can make more important uh, papers. And if you have a look at the efficiency of that in terms of impacting care, it's hugely inefficient. And if we started to get teams working together, if we, so SpaceX is a great example where 
you you put a uh, you want to put the man on the moon or the man on Mars or, or you you put an aspiration of where you want to get to and then you pull people and their resource and their um, and their enthusiasm along with it and I think there's some really quite challenging things for us to do to in in the healthcare sector to do that but I I can imagine that a health X project is where we can start to eradicate some of the non non-communicable diseases is is definitely on the radar because mm. there's some major things that we can major conditions that can have a, a marked effect on quality of life and um, on society as a whole that, that we can do transformative things we just don't do it yeah it's similar to kind of what bill gates is thinking isn't it with all of his projects as you say it's similar to that model of of you know genuinely throw as much resource as it needs you know there's a, there's a bit in that documentary about bill gates recently that you know someone asked him you know how much money is it going to take to i think it was eradicate polio in nigeria and somebody said a number and he said no no you've just said that number because that's what you think i want to hear or that's what you think you can ask for you tell me now what it actually requires and they just doubled it or tripled it or something you know <laughs> and it was like yeah okay that now now we're somewhere where we can throw enough resource at this to actually solve a problem and it does require as you say far beyond academia and it's interesting as well you know we, we have ac- academics on here that have transferred into entrepreneurship and, and transformed into entrepreneurship as well and it seems to be that, that there are definitely a couple of categories of academics those that are happy and content you know pushing the research to the point where those other people can take over and then there's the people that are frustrated by the academia alone and therefore want to be the ones that take it forwards uh, for everybody else i guess and and you, you definitely fall into that second category you know it's, you definitely get frustrated and it's funny because even when I, I remember when i was a doctor as well and i was revising for for the exams various exams you're always doing exams and i just i, I started i started tallying up and i can't remember these numbers i wish i could i should dig them out but I started tallying up how many hours of time, you know, because at the end of the day, a lot of the time when we're doing business models in healthcare, a lot of, a lot of people will justify a product or a service based on how many hours it saves a clinician. And I was just thinking, in, if, if you go by that, if you go on that route, okay, so what you're saying is efficiency of healthcare is going to get greater if you save clinicians time. And bearing in mind, you're talking about an hour here or there when you're talking about health tech products. If you think about the amount of hours that clinicians are revising for exams, like each and every single clinician, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours per exam, you've just got to think like as a, as an institution, (laughs) exams and, and I suppose you could call it academia from our side, which just generally was not fit for purpose. You know, we were learning the pressure that gas was stored outside the hospital and what pressure it was in the pipe and then what pressure, you know, what, what, what difference does that make? And the fact that you're taking clinicians' own time to to try and to try and learn all this stuff, it's it just remarkably inefficient. And, and and that kind of frustration with academia to us to an extent is again what forced me into entrepreneurship as well. And I do say forced because it felt for me like there was no other option, as it as it sort of sounds like for you, there was there's no other option than to go towards what what is now changing health. I think it takes you down a very personal journey and it's, yeah it does you're right for me is where you question the very heart of what you're doing now I, I would probably challenge you a little bit in saying actually understanding the gas pressures is part of the, the 
deep background knowledge that you don't oh, for think... the engineers, mate, but not for not for the <laughs> not for the jobbing anaesthetist. Oh, come on. If I can check the anesthetic machine and it tells me that there's no error. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna dig underground and, and have a look at the, <laughs> the PSI number of the vault or whatever the gas is stored in. But I, okay, I'll, I'll take your challenge. <laughs> but the, the interesting bit is so in in health, and I think you've just identified something that's really important. Is so health's a peculiar place in, in the tech because um, you can learn and you can pick up tech quickly, um, and but not at, at a high level. But you can get enough to understand it. Whereas yeah. The type of deep health understanding that you have, you have to acquire over years and years mm. and years. So I think there's some really interesting elements to health tech entrepreneurship where um, we are older um, than tech yeah. entrepreneurs. I remember one of the first VC pitches I gave, um, which was to one of the top tech funds. And this was a, a lady, and I, I remember it vividly. She had like five mobile phones in front of her. She mm. had her PAs around her. Um, half her head was shaven she was super cool seriously smart and we talked about what became changing health as a concept of uh, digital behavior change uh, at scale tailored personalized behavioral programs and she said I love it I said but I don't understand health and I just Mm. went okay, so you've got this kind of partition of the tech world and the health world, which is, this was five or six years ago, and I think they've come together a lot. But another element was, she said she said it with a smile on her face. She said, Mike, I, I normally get 21, 22-year-old people pitching at me. They said, I don't end up with a 40-year-old professor uh, stood mm. there pitching at me. And she was laughing. She said, don't get me wrong. I find it reassuring that you know your stuff. Um, and actually, I take confidence in the fact that when I talk about diabetes, I have been a geek. <laughs> I've yeah. written a lot of papers about it. And, and that from the tech side, she says, I kind of get that. But it's, I think health tech entrepreneurship brings another, a different type of person um, to it where they, where they are wanting to go on this personal journey. And it is, a, I guess, a very selfish one that you're, you're wanting to change something um, because you've you don't feel happy with the way things are provided at the moment. Now, an important note, I, I, I still think that academia is hugely important. I didn't want to dismiss that. I think your concept of where you get different types of academic researchers is really true. Mm. And I think that the responsibility that, that people like you and I have who are going into this more applied world is to ensure that the, the world-class research which is out there gets translated into clinical care yeah, I think I think that's quite an interesting, um, an interesting space to be in. It's a good word, responsibility. I think, because there is that responsibility there for people that have learned how to grow a business or they've learned how to, as you say, apply that clinical research in a real life environment to actually use that knowledge to be able to appraise it. You know, you've got having spent the the time in the world of academia, you understand those papers, you understand how to read them, you understand how to appraise them, and you understand the potential of what they can achieve in the real world. And I think you're right with a with a varied background in 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 the applied world of business you then do i i genuinely feel it myself that responsibility to use your position to actually try and and inflict the most impact on the world that you absolutely can i definitely definitely relate to you on that yeah and it 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 is a a responsibility piece so when i was doing my training we i did a random thing which is I, i was 
lucky to get a, an NIHR, uh, sorry, National Institute for Health Research Senior Research Fellowship. And I, I guess one of the, the comments I hear routinely is when I got my first fellowship and the, the, the director of Diabetes UK research at the time, a guy called Ian Frame, I remember having a beer with him afterwards saying, Mike, we couldn't work out whether you were, you were crazy or you were going to do something that would <laughs> impact. And uh, he, he's become a good friend. And he says, oh, we definitely took a gamble because um, you were different to the, the other people we typically fund. And the same thing for my NHR work, but I, I decided that at one point, instead of going to, I know, Harvard, Yale, Oxford or Cambridge, so I would go out to San Francisco and work in Silicon Valley. And that's a, a very different place. And it was me recognizing that mm. if you want to help people, and I, I had a patient who took part in one of our studies who, uh, who, who was a walking study. And at the end of it, her diabetes got better or improved and she said Mike why's my doctor never told me that walking's good for my type 2 diabetes and I kind of fell with my head in my hands and then you start to think about the problem in a different way which is how can I help people at scale and that's where technology really came in because it was it was starting to transform social the way we work uh, socially the way that we bank the way that we shop and yet we haven't done that in healthcare and I was a million miles away from having the skills I need uh, needed needed to do that and the same way in medicine we work in teams so you're an anaesthetist you have an anaesthetist a surgeon you have um, uh, an internist you have a diabetologist I think that the the health technologist is a, is another part of that of that team and I, I, re I recognized that I needed to retrain I did a, a an MBA in, in strategy and innovation I built the first digital platform um, in the UK and then realize you couldn't actually use it in the NHS <laughs> because there, there were no regulatory frameworks there were no security frameworks you know, in, broadly speaking because um, apps were, were relatively new for, for health and in type 2 diabetes there were like 800,000 apps in the world but there's only a handful that have had FDA or NHS approval so um, I found myself in this place where to actually start to use digital tools you need to support the system and my boss again said those immortal words of you can't just moan about it Mike get involved <laughs> uh, and so I, I set up the national horizon scanning facility for the for the UK which was again trying to instead of looking at how the problem was solved historically but to put the problem in the middle and then and then look at it from different angles and say well what, what's the problem in the UK and it's that there is an uneven playing field so companies have large budgets and they they have intelligence on what's going on in the marketplace but the NHS doesn't have the same level of, of intelligence so it doesn't know when drugs are coming to market when products are coming to market so it can't budget accordingly it can't set research agendas accordingly um, and it it finds it hard and, and very responsive to regulatory frameworks and although we've known digital health has been coming for a long time, it, it just wasn't ready for it. So we started to build um, digital platforms, so natural language processing platforms, where you could start to aggregate data and intelligence from uh, different parts of, of the world so that you can start to see what's coming through in, in the pipeline. So if you're negotiating a tariff on a drug, you know it's going to fall off patent in eight months or that there's another drug coming through. And I, I guess that... That again is you understand where you need to get to. So you need to 
regulatory frameworks to get better and so you need to support the the nhs to get more in, intelligence and insight from the marketplace so who owns all those you know platforms and things now did you you see so you built them but who owns them oh so they're owned by uh, by the national institute for health research and, oh, and okay so they yeah, yeah and so they'll be publicly released in january uh 2020 so the first one of one of those will allow you to search through clinical trials registries, uh, PubMed, um, but it's about enabling the system. So I, I normally taught that if you want to enable the system, there are three groups of people you want to to support. So the first one is the end user, and, and in the healthcare sector, we uh, we tend not to have a direct consumer route. You work business to business to consumer. So, um, for example, a, a drug goes is bought by the NHS and the NHS in this case is the business and then the consumer is the patient. So um, working in a B2B to C, the NHS is the, is the buyer. There are different countries, there are different types of buyers. And um, the other group is innovators. So you have academic and commercial innovators and maybe naively, I don't draw any distinction between the, the two because mm. they're both doing great work. They just go about it in a, in a different way. And as we're starting to see R&D labs change, I think academia and, and industry are getting much closer than they ever have done before. Hmm. And, and the third group is what we call um, enablers. So this is uh, funders. So funders could be commercial funders. It could be venture capital. It could be um, an academic research funder. Um, it could also be a regulator, a policymaker, uh, or a procurer. So these enablers are helping people have intelligence about the marketplace. Because if you get that right and you enable the information sharing, you should be able to identify unmet needs, um, but then work together to solve them. Because I, I, maybe again, naively, I don't see this tension between healthcare and, and innovators because innovators want to help. And, but if we can find a way to make that dialogue more efficient, then that helps everybody. Yeah, I completely agree. And we've said at HS for a long time that I think one of the biggest problems that we solve is access to customers for innovators so that they can validate their ideas and so they can then sell to them. I think, as you say, that it is, it is a point that those worlds aren't actually that far apart. <laughs> they walk amongst <laughs> us sort of thing, you know, and they do. You know, the, the worlds genuinely aren't that far apart. Uh, similarly to you know clinicians and managers you, you know you always think that there's going to be this friction and generally there's not if you just put these people in the right in the right room together it's just actually going about that in order to do it so i think anything that facilitates those conversations is is dreamy to be honest but i, I just want to talk about changing health for a minute mike so I, tell right. me about you mentioned that you did some of those early vc pitches i mean i'm interested in what you pitched then and what changing health is now Oh, that's an that's an interesting question. When when I first started pitching, or the original concept of, of changing health was to empower patients and give them the knowledge and the knowledge, information, and tools they need to change their behaviour to better self-manage their condition. Um, so that was the first element, and it, it's kind of a classic innovation model where you see this product and process. So the idea of having an, an app or a digital portal and a coach five or six years ago was quite novel, um, whereas now it's it's more routine. So the original pitches were taking evidence-based um, digital tools and then enabling 
people to use them. And what we've shown over time is that they kind of work. Uh, they, they have a, a good effect on weight and, and they have a good effect on HbA1c. Uh, the more recent pictures are very different. They're more focused on process innovation. And because we've seen, a, a, as you would do in an innovation space, you see this consolidation of good ideas. It's like um, bicycles. So most bicycles look the same these days. So you remember you used to have penny farthings with different <laughs> size wheels, where actually now they've got the same size wheels. You've got a triangle in the middle. That mm. there's, there's a consolidation of innovation that goes in there and where things look strikingly similar. Now, the, the process innovation is how can you make that go faster? And it's about having lighter tubes. It's about having um, mm. production lines that can do it at different price points. And so our more recent work is around process innovation. So how you can use technology and, and particularly different types of, uh, of, of AI, machine learning, deep learning, um, to try and support the process so that you can provide the right care at the right time to the right person. So you would call that precision medicine if you're a tailored medicine, if you're from a medical background, or you would call it uh, market segmentation if you're a, <laughs> a commercial marketeer. And there are also some quite interesting elements. So as we've seen our first, our first year of business, we, I think we had about 4,000 paid for users which at the time were, it was great, but the, the cost of acquisition for those users was through the roof because you, you're having to kind of hold the commissioner hand, hold their hand as they're going through the procurement process. Uh, if we fast forward to today, so our, our biggest um, contract is, is a contract for 600,000 users. Wow. Now, now that is a step change in not just the way that you deliver a digital service, but um, every element that it contains so how do you provide a help desk for half a million people mm -hmm. you can do, you can bootstrap it for four thousand <laughs> i can tell you we've, we've been there um but <laughs> half a million half a million you can't and also how do you do it raises other questions like um what's the lifetime value of that user so that i know how much i should be spending on keeping them on the program so every time I send an SMS to somebody or a phone call, it costs something. And we need to get as efficient because the more you scale these services, um, the, the greater efficiencies you need, need to provide. So we've, we've kind of been through those jumps and jumped through those, those hurdles. It, it's, it sounds like a super cool journey. I mean, how much do you think it has changed from when you initially <clears throat> when you initially pitched it to to where you are now? And what do you think has driven that change? And I guess the the reason that I asked that question is that health tech at the minute just seems so fast paced. It seems like there's a move. There's, there's certainly an increasing move towards evidence. There's a lot of scrutiny on business models. There's a lot of tension between are you saving money versus are you actually making money as are you saving money for the health service? Are you making money as a bit? You know, there's all these there's all these different things. I think they are constantly changing health tech at the moment. So, in that kind of five six years that you guys have been going, what what have been the sort of major differences that you've had to bring in as a result of that changing landscape? The two hardest ones have been the change in the evidence base. Yeah. Now, now, having come from that world, actually, it's one that we, when I look at some of our peers, for us, we've always said that you have to have an RTT underpinning mm. that we do. So um, 
we've come into it with a, a very strong portfolio of RCT. Now, I can argue that the RCT data becomes obsolete very quickly because if you do your digital service well enough, it should be different on a Monday to the way it is on a Friday. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you, should be, you should be tailoring it in near, near real time. And I think the learning for us is how you, how you keep the fidelity and um, the fidelity of the original RCT, but then you show and document how you make it better. The, the second difficulty I think is, <clears throat> and I guess this comes back to a comment I made earlier about, about regulatory landscapes. So six years ago, they, they were pretty non-existent. Uh, so they've caught up now. <laughs> yeah. and, and being the health space, they're, they're changing frequently. Now that becomes quite difficult because when as a, somebody who runs a business you're working towards standards and it takes time and it takes money to work to mm -hmm. standards and if the standards keep on changing then it's quite hard to keep up and i think there is there's a need to so at changing health we've done things like we have iso 27001 we have nhs accreditations we have uh, the programs are validated by kismet we also have uh, cyber essentials plus for uh, information governance and gdpr and these are templates you can use in different areas of the world and not just to the the uk yeah. but it makes it makes it hard to keep up at times mm. but i think there will be a there's a need for a kind of an industry body to kind of say, okay, let's freeze the rules for, uh, for the next 12 months and then we'll work with you on what the next set of rules will look like. Does your app have to be registered as a class two medical device? Out of interest. Uh, that's a, again, that's a really good question. So we deliberately designed it so it wouldn't. Um, so, okay. for example, we have a lot of data where we could start to provide artificial intelligence or, as I jokingly call it there are three types of ai artificial intelligence and then the original ai actual intelligence and at the moment if you use artificial intelligence you you could fall under a class two regulatory um, environment whereas if you use actual intelligence you don't so we, huh. we deliberately use original ai actual intelligence um, because it means that we don't fall into that class two regulatory framework now that doesn't mean we're not collecting the data to support the machine learning, deep learning driven uh, decision making over the future. But what it means essentially is we're gathering a, a significant ground truth data set so that when we do need to go through that regulatory um, framework that we've got the data that un underpins it. But we, we designed deliberately to avoid that because it just makes things so cumbersome. Mm. It is a good move. It's there's a lot of people in a, a lot of trouble at the minute trying to catch up with the new the new regulations and trying to get old devices certified for the new regs and stuff. It's a, it seems like an absolute nightmare. I, th I think, and especially for you guys, you know, as you, you made a really good point that you guys are from the academic world. Or you are you know, from the academic world, so catching up with evidence and, and staying on top of evidence will feel quite natural to you as, as as opposed to I guess some companies that are you know more more from the entrepreneurship side and world and, and business world that, that might find that academia a bit more laborious let's say or, or not willing to necessarily divert as much resource as it actually needs and so all those different things and I think you know, you've you've highlighted there a really interesting approach which is that you, you don't have to go all in on, on something 
you can just, you can sit and collect the data and wait for your time that you can then breathe through it quite easily. And all these different things that it's, it's not necessarily so black and white as getting a randomized control trial and this mega level of evidence and loads of prospective studies and, you know, all those things versus do absolutely nothing and hope for the best. There is obviously these shades of gray in the middle. And I think it isn't, it's always useful for health tech companies to, to get advice on this and to figure out where they need to be because it is hard starting off. I think with you guys starting off five or six years ago where there wasn't a requirement for all of this stuff necessarily, it might've been a bit easier, but I think people that are starting off in entrepreneurship now in health tech don't have that luxury. And I think it is super important to make sure that you are starting these processes from day one, as you Harvey said on this podcast the other day, you know, getting as the CEO of the business, as the founder of the business is getting comfortable with academia and getting comfortable with the fact you are going to have to be evidence-based and figuring out what, what processes you're going to need in the business to actually do that because god forbid you should you should you know go for six months 12 months and then realize you've got to backdate and do it all (laughs) to get regulated because that will be an absolute nightmare i couldn't agree more i know in in the space our our main space of work is type 2 diabetes so that i guess the the big trend at the moment is to talk about reversal of type 2 diabetes and putting type 2 diabetes into remission and that's kind of the talk of the town now, to give you an example of why that's quite useful, being a, a geek as well as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, the biggest paper in that to date was published by Mike Lean and Roy Taylor in, in The Lancet. And I was very humbled to be a co-author on that paper too. So when people stand and talk about these paradigm shifting trials, um, I've been quite privileged to have a foot in both camps. And you need to tread that very carefully because you, you need to make sure that um, that gives me a privilege to be in a clinical environment and you need to make sure that you use that privilege for good and i think your comment too about the responsibility of founders is is really true as well so in healthcare innovation i talk about three chasms for innovation so Mm. the first one is from good idea to minimally viable product the second chasm is minimally viable product into clinically validated and regulated product and the third chasm is clinically regulated and validated to scale. And I think when we started, uh, Changing Health started, actually you could get through the first one pretty quickly because the regulatory frameworks weren't there. You just built an app and and you went for it. Um, Whereas now you just can't. And one of the things that we've been embedding is the ability to accelerate over those gaps because where you really want to get to is scale. And so how can as a founder of Changing Health, I have a responsibility to keep that innovation pipeline going. So how can I help other people with much better ideas than the ones that I have and cross the first chasm of good idea to MVP? How can we get things to where I'm really excited, which is the, the scale and, and the personalization. So as entrepreneurs, we have a responsibility to help other entrepreneurs too. Mm. In terms of your product, just a quick question on that. So you guys are obviously, you mentioned empowering patients. You talk about obviously this all starting in the laboratory with, with the data, turning it digital and really going down the route of behavior change and, and getting the right information to patients and things. I mean, if I'm, if I'm a patient going through changing health's products, I mean, what, what's, what does my experience look like? I mean, can you just describe that to me? So the, the experience is 
we normally talk about the digital services as being an enhanced service pathway so it doesn't take away from the existing support you get from the care team mm. but what it does is it gives you the the tools and knowledge you need to allow to, to allow you to make better more informed decisions so the programs tend to have four um four elements to them so learn um learn do transition maintain so you learn about the condition that you have, but also, and probably more importantly, we all know we should move more, eat less and sleep better. What most of us don't know is how to do that. And so there's no point telling somebody that they need to lose weight. What's more interesting is showing the approaches that they could have to get there. And we embed within that uh, many behavioral techniques so that they don't come up as behavior change techniques. They just look like something you do. But yeah. we try to distill out the things that, that don't lead to a clinically meaningful change. So you get education, you get access to a one-to-one -one coach, and then you get tracking. Um, and there are programs that you can join that allow you to um, target your weight, your physical activity. And those are tailored one-to-one uh, -one with, with your coach. And it's an interesting approach as well, this blended nature of digital and personal. You know, you, you're not, as you say, you're not removing the human interaction with a clinician to give you that support. You're not removing that. You're not saying this is the panacea for everything you're, you're saying. You know, this augments into the care that you're already getting and creates that kind of blended approach between, yeah, <laughs> analog and digital, I guess, which I quite like. Yeah, and... When we came into this, or as we've evolved, we came out just, can we get education out there? Can we get tracking tools and coaching out there? And now we, you end up, if you fast forward, even in four years, the questions that we have are, are very different. We realized when we did that, we had a proliferation. At one point we had, I think it was 11 apps. And wow. each one of those was a, a kind of a, what's called a native build. So essentially you've got 11 different children you need to look after. <laughs> and, and each one of those has a different languages. And it just, it became so cumbersome and, and expensive. And also you didn't get the data and there wasn't any efficiency. So the, yeah. the more recent programs have really started to look at some, some really big challenges. So I remember sitting with our CTO and saying, right, what we need is we need one service that can work with a million different businesses. And each one of those businesses could have a million users and each user could have their own unique user journey. Mm. Now that, now that's a, a fundamental difference to a, a native app that basically takes information and, and, and gives information back and to have a, a real time a platform or ecosystem that works and tailors itself in real time based on who you are, where you are and the information you give it. And I think that's really the future of digital health is, is not just one size fits all, but taking behavioral insight, mashing it with, with sensor data, massing it with clinical data and um, to tailor the user journey. And you couldn't do that clinically because you never really have all of the data. And so the big thing in digital is you have behavioral data, which as a clinician, as you know, you see somebody for like four or five minutes and you don't get the other uh, 364 days a year when you're <laughs> doing, um, doing stuff that probably has a more profound impact on their condition than those four or five minutes you have with them. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you've actually beaten me to my final question there, which was about the future. But I, I really do agree. I don't like agreeing with people so much. I think it's boring for podcasts. But I, <laughs> I do, I do agree with you that again, that that, that the future is personalised. And I think the way that you are 
also you're appreciating the fact that i mean i said this said this at an event actually that i had on monday i did an event at the google for startups campus with um a couple of ai companies that i know really well so Fibris and skin analytics and Adam and Neil were talking about this that we definitely backed them up on, which was that healthcare just isn't really this collection of products and like heavily productized ecosystem of, of all these different bits that can come in and do this techie bit and that techie bit and this techie bit and that techie bit. I think what you appreciate is that healthcare is a service and what you've built is okay, something digital, but actually it plugs in at both ends into something that either already exists or that you've put in that, okay, connects in with humans. But at the end of the day, it just embeds it within an entire system. And it means that you solve a problem from end to end. I think added to that, the fact that you can then personalize it per individual, what it essentially means is that ethically for your health tech solution, it's coming in and it's solving a genuine problem for someone. And that person is genuinely looked after from end to end. And so if something does go wrong, there's all these different safety mechanisms that will, that will pick them up, but also that they're, they're going in at a point, which isn't you, they're coming out at a point, which isn't you because you've embedded yourself within the system, which I think adds so much credibility and so much quality in the actual care, because I think so that there are so many ideas at the moment. There are so many, products coming out at the moment that just solve a really small problem and that's because they're often from really passionate people that are either clinicians or, or they work in healthcare or they're from a certain sector in tech where they think that they can solve a problem because of a personal experience whatever it is but i think this there's too much localism and there's too much kind of it solves a small problem in this particular region in this particular way i think the future is as you've quite right rightly highlighted and pointed out is that you've got to pick a solution that can fit into an entire service or you've got to just redesign the entire service and you've got to essentially own that entire chain. I, th I think that really is the future along with that personalization. And I think only then are we really going to start seeing some, some real successes in health tech, which I think are starting to, to, to rear their heads now. I mean, we had the chief medical officer of Philips on here a couple of months ago who was saying that, you know, their approach is, is that, but on sort of turbo, it's almost like private equity level because they just think, oh, I need to solve a problem for um, the, the cardiology suite of a hospital. So what I'll do is I'll buy all the companies that do anything with regard to a cardiology suite in a hospital and we will just piece together the uh, the interoperability issues and the APIs and we'll do all of that in the background and then we'll just sell hospitals a cardiac catheter lab there you go <laughs> we've boxed it there's your cardiac catheter lab but I think on the on the micro level for the people that want to be acquired by Philips I think by fitting into your local you know system and by local I mean kind of the the technologies and the the healthcare services that surround you I think honestly that that definitely is a picture of the future so about a year ago, we, we made a strategic decision to pivot changing health because it was clear that that transition into where we sit in a service was was where the future was. So I, I describe the new the next generation. So we've rebuilt our entire platform five times in this, in <laughs> good for you. And and that's ground up rebuild. So that's not just a uh, a reskin on the front. You've got to have and, humility to do that as well, Mike. <laughs> and i've got to persuade the board to allow me to spend the money <laughs> and uh where we've ended up now is is exactly where 
where you we recognize that actually to get what the end user wants we need a bit of what we've got a bit of what somebody else has got and and things to keep people engaged so i, I describe the most recent generation of, of changing health as the salesforce.com of digital health mm-hmm. where where our new uh, we provide a platform or an ecosystem where we can readily take uh, so if philips for example wanted to end up with five different um, services coming together our development time for doing that has come down from i don't know six to nine months we did our first service in under three hours oh wow and, and that is built to deploy on a clinical grade platform and so it's having to go back from the very go back to first principles on what you're trying to do is absolutely important and i can imagine that in four or five years we'll have done the same thing again we'll have continued to evolve because you have to very boring but i couldn't agree more mate <laughs> um so sorry to our listeners for for completely agreeing with you at every turn but i honestly mate it's 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 so true and it's, it's such an important point but i have to say that we've run out of time it's gone extremely quickly and as usual i've learned a huge amount from you mate but the way that we end these podcasts is i hand back over to you to close us out to essentially just let us know a bit about yourself summarize a bit about the, the, the company and to close us out with any asks that you might have of our audience. So by all means, Mike, take it away. My name's Mike. I'm a professor of metabolism and lifestyle medicine. I'm also founder and chairman of Changing Health, one of the, uh, the UK's leading digital health companies. It'd be great to talk to more innovators, particularly those who are working in the, the digital health and behavior change space. So please do reach out to me, find me on LinkedIn, uh, find me on Twitter or drop me an email at mike at changinghealth.com. Awesome. And for our listeners, I'll put the links to all of Mike's socials and email in the description of this episode. So Mike, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And uh, yeah, let's catch up soon. Likewise. I look forward to a cuppa. Okay. Cheers, John. Cheers, dude. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey everybody and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.